Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the congressional tax agenda, both in the next few weeks and into 2025, when a number of provisions of the 2017 uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are set to expire at the end of that year. Our guide through the congressional tax thicket is Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers and a former deputy chief of staff to Republican Senate, uh, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. And he also served with a senior policy advisor and counsel to Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. Joining the conversation are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. So, Rohit, uh, welcome back to the show. Tori and Steve, welcome back to the show. <laughs> let's let's talk about taxes. <laughs> let's do it. Let's begin with the uh, bipartisan tax bill that's been working its way, uh, well, taking shape anyway, on, on Capitol Hill. While everybody has been focusing on appropriations bills and shutdowns and that sort of thing, uh, there has been some work beneath the surface uh, on a on a tax bill. And it's actually taking shape in a bipartisan fashion. Passed the House Ways and Means Committee last week, I think, with a very strong bipartisan uh, vote. So what's in it? Uh, it seems like a rather unusual thing with uh, bipartisan support. Give us an idea of, uh, of, of what's in it and where things stand right now. Yeah, so the the you're right. This is sort of um, you know below scope bipartisanship that's happening while a lot of above the waterline you know partisan fighting is uh, continues apace. There's sort of what I consider like two core features of this bill, and then some additional items that kind of got added on as it was making way through the process. The core features are sort of temporarily delaying some tax increases that were enacted in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but had delayed effective dates. A couple of these provisions, one dealing with the way in which research expense is treated um, and the way in which the interest limitation rules apply, those kicked in January 1, 2022. And then a different provision that related to how much of a sort of a capital acquisition, like a plant equipment material, how much could be deducted immediately and how much had to be kind of spread out over the following years. That that started to change at the beginning of 2023. So these three provisions all emanate from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, all of which were done in 2017 with these delayed effective dates, with the idea that Congress is never really going to let these things happen. They're all sort of anti-growth, bad for investment, bad for jobs, bad for wages kind of policies. And surely to God, no future Congress is actually going to let this occur. Now, some of these provisions have been in effect for two years. So, you know, we may still fix it, but clearly the 2017 Congress overstated a future Congress's anathema uh, to these provisions. Paired with that is an expansion of the child tax credit, 
a fairly modest expansion as these things go. But House and Senate Democrats, sort of middle of last year, actually middle of 2022, I take it back, it's been a while, middle of 2022, decided that, hey, Republicans, even though we Democrats support preventing these delayed tax increases from actually taking effect, because this was the product of a partisan Republican-only 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there should be a political price to pay for undoing your own damage. And that political price will be some expansion of the child tax credit. And it took about a year and a half, as it turns out, for Democrats and Republicans to agree on the TCGA provisions. That's actually been pretty consensus for a while now. But what would be the size of the child tax credit increase, the design features, things like that. So those two things are kind of at the core of it. And then things got picked up along the way. Modest expansion of the low-income housing tax credit to induce more private capital to help build affordable housing, as the credit's name would suggest. A, a similarly sized provision that deals with disaster tax relief for the various communities that have been struck by disaster, whether that's natural disasters, train derailments, you know, fire, flood, hurricane, you know, you name it, all of that stuff, uh, which you know cuts across party lines. Disasters do not know partisanship. Disasters just happen wherever they happen. And then all of this is paid for, nearly entirely paid for, basically rounding error money for the federal government paid for by changes to the employee retention tax credit, which is a COVID era program that continues to live on and has gotten much bigger and much more expensive than Congress initially thought it would be. And basically, the, the main driver here is absent a change in law, people would have had until April 15th of 2025, so over a year from now, to amend returns and file and claim uh, some value of the credit. And Congress is saying, you know what, this is a pandemic era program. If you made it to January of 2024, congratulations. You didn't need the credit to survive. And we're going to you know, say all claims have to be filed by January 30th, 2024. That date may slip depending on when the bill ultimately gets signed into law. But at the moment, they're saying January 30th, 2024 is the deadline for filing an amended return. And the official estimators on Capitol Hill suggest that making this change, cutting off amended returns a year and change earlier than would otherwise happen, saves upwards of $70 billion for the federal government over the ensuing decade. So that's kind of the core proposal. It's got some Republican stuff in the TCJA provisions. It's got some Democratic stuff in the child tax credit provisions. Both of these are actually bipartisan, but they sort of lean right, lean left in their orientation. Bipartisan low-income housing assistance, bipartisan disaster assistance paid for by you know, ending a pandemic era program that I don't think anyone realized was going to be this expensive or indeed was still kicking out money at the pace that it is kicking out money. I just want to ask a follow up, not to be too cynical, but I mean, does this kind of show the tendency of Congress to enact things that they think will never take effect or that they don't intend to, to take effect to keep the cost of a prospective bill down officially and then you come along later and undo oh, it. Yeah, absolutely. And there is long and bipartisan history in this department. Democrats in the Affordable Care Act, which was a partisan Democrats only bill, had a rather significant, like fairly significant tax increase on sort of very expensive health insurance plans. It's sort of called the Cadillac tax for Cadillac health insurance proposals um, with a delayed effective date. Well, there was a lot of opposition amongst especially unions who had tended to had bargained for you know fairly generous health benefits who would have been severely exposed to this tax. So there was a delayed effective date, um, not entirely at the behest of the unions, but that, that was a component of it. And sure enough, over time, 
that tax was delayed, delayed, and then ultimately repealed, never went into effect um, as originally written, despite the fact that economists left, right, and center would have said, well, this is like the one thing we can do to control health insurance or uh, sort of medical inflation is, you know, not oversubsidize this through the tax code. So, you know, this is, you, there's a long history here. Democrats have done it. Republicans have done it. They continue to do it. They continue to do it because it mostly works, right? You can have a delayed bad thing seven, eight years from now. And the future Congress says, well, wait a second, whose dumb idea was this? We're not going to let this happen. Tori. Sure. I wanted to ask a quick question about the interest expense and the uh, the depreciation elements in the tax bill and whether or not this is an issue of double dipping. If, if I understand uh, the legislation, um, it would allow people, uh, businesses so, uh, to deduct a greater amount of the interest expense that they have when they take out a loan to purchase something. But it also would allow businesses who purchase you know, like major capital equipment, whatever, to fully depreciate that immediately, which to me, if, if I, and I'm probably not understanding this correctly, it seems like a little bit of double dipping. You know, you take out a loan to buy this big, heavy piece of, of equipment. We allow you to depreciate it, the full cost up front, but then we also allow you to deduct the interest that you use to pay for this. Are, are we talking about double dipping or do I just fundamentally not understand not, this? We're not really talking about double dipping because the, the sort of taking the immediate deduction for the purchase price of the capital equipment is a timing difference. Like you were gonna, you were gonna get to take the full deduct the full value of that expenditure, but it might be over three years or five years or ten years. It depends. Depreciation schedules are horribly complicated, and there are people who are expert in just that. God bless them. Um, <laughs> and so this is just a question of: Can you take the deduction immediately? You're going to take it out over uh, a number of years, so you're not getting a double deduction. Um, you're just getting maybe more of a deduction up front than you would have had we not done kind of full expensing or 100% bonus depreciation. The interest limitation rule, just as a reminder, in before 2017, there was essentially no limit on how much interest you could deduct. The sort of global standard, if you will, like what you sort of typically see in other developed Western European and other developed countries is the standard that the TCJ initially enacted, which is to limit uh, the interest, to limit your interest deduction to 30% of EBITDA, right? Earnings before interest now I'm going to mess it up. Interest taxes, depreciation, um, amortization. And amortization. In 2022, it changed to 30% of EBIT. So lost depreciation and amortization as an add back for calculating how much interest you could deduct, which actually put the US out of step uh, with the rest of the developed world. Uh, and so that's partly why there's this pressure to go back to the EBITDA standard or to save the DA as the tax wonks I travel <laughs> with like to say, get us back to kind of the global norm for where we should be. It was, we were clearly out of step pre-2017, and that's why there was a willingness to do 30% of EBITDA, kind of keep us in the global kind of mainstream. But then the change that it kicked in in 2022 overshot, and we're now at the moment out of step with the vast majority of the rest of the world. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers. We're discussing the congressional tax agenda, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers. 
about the congressional tax agenda. And Tori, I think you've got a follow-up question. Yeah, I just, Rohit, you were talking about how this, uh, at least the business portion of this, the tax cuts have been sort of percolating for a while um, with nobody really paying much of attention. And all of a sudden, boom, in January, we've had this huge uh, flurry of activity between the House and the Senate and the House has moved it out of committee. Can you talk about that a little bit? Why did this seemingly come out of nowhere? Yeah, I think it was a combination of Chairman Smith and Chairman Wyden, the chair of the two tax committees in the Senate and the House and the Senate, respectively, Chairman Smith, Republican, Chairman Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, of two people who don't generally agree on the direction of travel for the tax code, but found common cause here. And they had been working on this for most of the fall and into the into the winter. Uh, and I think they just finally, finally got to a place where they sort of had an, an agreement. And as Bob said in the introduction, you know, the bill came out of the Ways and Means Committee on a 40 to three vote. So all Republicans and all but three Democrats voting for it. And there's actually reason to believe that this thing might be on the House floor as early as next week on the so-called suspension calendar, which is a mechanism for the House to pass to something, skip the House Rules Committee, go straight to the floor. Um, the penalty you pay is you have to produce a two-thirds vote, not a simple majority vote. And so a two-thirds vote in a in the House is typically 290 out of the 435. We, we don't exactly have 435 members because of retirements and and the like. But basically, you should think of it as for rounding purposes, they got to get about 300 votes uh, to get this off the suspension calendar into the Senate. And people are pretty optimistic that this thing will have north of 300 votes um, coming out of the House and then sends it over to the Senate. The Senate is, of course, a slightly trickier animal. There is no suspension calendar in the Senate. Everything that's, you know, by and large takes 60 votes in the Senate. And, you know, we'll see. Senate Republicans have been a little circumspect about how they feel about this transaction. They feel like, you know, it wasn't a deal that they cut. It was cut by a Republican House chairman and a Democratic sort of Senate committee uh, chairman. If the House passes it, and that, that's an untested proposition, and, you know, the House is a, can be a sort of an unpredictable and chaotic place at times. But if the House actually passes it next week, I get pretty optimistic that this thing ultimately uh, becomes law, whether the Senate takes it up as a freestanding measure, as has been suggested, or whether they attach it to an appropriations vehicle we have appropriations deadlines in March, uh, you know, remains to be seen. But I think mm -hmm. there'll be, you know, if something that gets, let's call it 300 votes out of this House of Representatives, this very divided, fairly partisan environment, if they can unite around this proposal, um, it will leave the House and hit the Senate with a significant bit of momentum and a full head of steam. And you start to get pretty optimistic that this thing is actually going to get signed into law if, you know, uh, in a not quite timely way, two years in arrears, but, you know, better late than never. Steve, I know you you were hoping to be on jury duty today, but the, uh, darn it all, you you weren't called. So you get to be with us on Facing the Future. What's uh, what's your take on uh, on the tax bill here? Do you have some questions? Well, yeah. So, uh, Rohit, you mentioned sort of the, the cost and the, the use of the pandemic, uh, sunsetting the pandemic employer provision to, to sort of offset the cost. But, you know, by by my rough calculation, I mean, the business provision and the child credit provisions, about $150 billion over the first couple of years. And the pandemic provisions, about 78, almost 80 billion. So you're still still short about 40, $45 billion. I mean, was there any interest in actually trying to close the rest of that gap? And and if not, why not? And doesn't that sort of bode poorly for Congress's ability to address the deficit going forward? I mean, if they can't find $45 billion for, the, for something they all want to do on the tax side, 
Um, does, does that mean they're not going to be able to find the trillion that we need to help pay down the debt and balance the budget? Honestly, the fact that they're paying for any of it is a little bit out of character for Congress. Typically, these ex- extension of expiring tax relief provisions are not paid for at all. So paying for any of it is actually a little bit of a break from the historic norm in this space. And you know, like it or not, Congress lives under its own set of idiosyncratic budget rules. Uh, and the congressional budget rules, at the moment anyway, say, well, let's look at what happens over the next decade. Right. And over the next decade, this thing is basically a rounding error addition to the deficit. It's a couple hundred million dollars, but spread out over 10 years is like, you know, the federal government might spend a couple hundred million dollars while we're talking um, here today. So that's just the way that Congress looks at it. They look at the table that they get from the official estimators on Capitol Hill. They look at the bottom right hand corner where the net number shows up. They see a number that's, you know, uh, three digits, not four. And they're like, all right, good enough. Let's go to your broader question as to whether Congress is going to be able to find you know, uh, either spending reductions or tax increases to pay for things that are coming down the pipeline, whether that's you know the continued expansion of entitlement spending or the expiration of all of the individual and pass-through and a fair number of corporate provisions at the end of 2025. Color me deeply skeptical that Congress is either uh, is going to want to, and even if they want to, that they will be able to find spending cuts or tax increases of sufficient magnitude to pay for whatever amount of tax relief that they would like to extend at the end of 2025. But as just as a reminder for everyone, at the end of 2025, every working American, every W-2 wage earner in the country, everyone that's got pass-through income, or the vast majority of people that have pass-through income, are going to experience an automatic tax increase if Congress does not act before the end of 2025. It is a fiscal cliff, as we refer to it here in Washington, D.C. We had one of these in 2012 when I was working for uh, Senator McConnell, and he negotiated this with then Vice President Biden. It's a almost a complete replay, both of the issue set, potentially the, the political actors, um, and the amount of revenue at stake. And in 2012, we made z- zero effort and actually had zero debate about paying for any of it. I think we'll have a little bit of debate about paying for it this time around because the deficit picture, the debt picture is much worse than it was at the end of 2012. But the truth of the matter is, even just take the sort of President Biden's opening bid, he wants to protect anyone making less than $400,000 from a tax increase. That's about two, two and a half trillion dollars of revenue over the ensuing decade. And I don't think that there's two and a half trillion dollars of tax increases or spending reductions that even if Democrats just had to do it with their own votes, could unite around and certainly not if we have any form of divided government. To do all of it, just to put the numbers in context, would cost about four and a half trillion dollars over the ensuing decade, right? And the federal government's going to, that's probably close to about 10% of what we're going to collect over that same period of time. So these are real dollars. And look, I think we get serious about this when the public starts to care about it. Like when when voters start electing um, members of the House and Senate who campaign on and then are authorized, feel empowered to execute the transaction of, we're going to cut spending. And we're going to raise taxes and we're going to write the state of fiscal ship. But until it becomes a regular person voting issue, there's no reason for Congress to make the hard choices that this would inevitably entail because cutting spending and raising taxes, I can't think of two less popular things um, in economic policy space than cutting spending and raising taxes. And it's because of that that we have a $34 trillion national debt that is you know, headed uh, only further north as you look at the tables. Yeah, there there aren't too many politicians who campaign on a, a slogan of uh, 
vote for me, I'll raise your taxes and cut your spending. So, uh, I mean, not very Walter popular. Mondale campaigned on that in 1984 <laughs> and probably actually lost 49 states. I have a kind of a uh, another question about the uh, the structure here. Some of the uh, the tax breaks are retroactive to 2022, I think. Or mm-hmm. my question that comes from that is if we're if we're providing incentives to encourage research and development and business investment, is it rewarding past behavior? I mean, you're, you're, you're really, you know, past the point where you're incentivizing that behavior because it's already happened or not happened. So does that re- retroactivity really make sense? Yeah. So this one is at least with respect to, I'm probably most familiar with the research provision, the, the ability to dedu- immediately deduct your research expense or to have to spread it out over five years if it's a domestically incurred expense. That one uniquely, I think there's an argument for retroactivity, and it, it, but it's for a way that it's in a way that people don't typically um, just haven't thought about or, or don't maybe appreciate, which is you have thousands and thousands of small, really small businesses that engage in a lot of R&D, software development and you know uh, early stage you know research for cures for disease and things like that. And they were mostly caught off guard by this provision. They don't you know, have sophisticated tax policy advisors. They weren't paying attention to what happened in 2017 and this delayed effective date. And for the vast majority of them, this requirement that they spread out their research expense and deduct it over five years rather than in the year in which they in- incurred the expense created a liquidity event uh, for these small businesses. Right. There are stories, thousands of stories of, you know, founders who are having to like dip into their retirement funds, pay the penalty to the IRS or enter into an installment agreement with the service. Right. They just didn't have the cash to make the tax payment. Um, If you didn't make this change retroactively, those businesses by and large don't survive. And so this is about saving thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of small businesses from an insolvency event. Because if you fix it, then they can go back, they can amend their return, they can get the get the full deduction, they can unwind the transaction with the IRS uh, and the like, and they can kind of be made whole. And so that's the real argument for retroactivity, at least as it relates to the one of the bigger pieces of this, which is the tax treatment of research expense. We really don't want, because of tax policy, a bunch of startups, you know, one of whom may be sitting on the cure for cancer or the next technological breakthrough or whatever it is. We have no idea. But somewhere in there, there's a, you know, there's a gold nugget in the mine. Um, but if we lay waste to the mine, then we never get to experience the the benefits of those uh, developments. Well, that's a good summary of that issue, and I appreciate the answer. Uh, and that's all the time we have, as a matter of fact, for uh, for this segment. So I want to thank uh, Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at Pricewaterhouse Cooper for Coopers for his insight on uh, the congressional tax agenda. Tori and Steve and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are we're going to talk now about the congressional agenda on the spending side. We've been talking about taxes with uh, Rohit Kumar. And uh, most of the attention in Washington has been on the appropriations bills. Just to review, 
Congress has been trying to pass the 12 annual appropriation bills that keep the government funded. Those are the discretionary spending part of the budget, about 30% of the budget. They were supposed to have these done by September 30th at the end of the last fiscal year. We're now deep into the current fiscal year and we're still operating on a continuing resolution, which is something that just says we're going we're gonna to go on autopilot at last year's levels until we figure this out. We were approaching a deadline on January 19th, and amazingly, Congress was able to pass the night before on January 18th, and President Biden signed another can kick, you might call it, uh, down the road. So, Tori, um, we turn to you as our Capitol Hill appropriations expert. (laughs) Kind of where do things stand now on these appropriations bills? Uh, I describe it as sort of hurry up and wait, right? We, we, we got the continuing resolution that kept the government open for another month. Uh, we have both both chambers, both parties have agreed to the top line numbers. But now comes the, the hard work behind closed doors, the, the four corners of the appropriations committees, Republican Democrat chairman in both chambers are meeting to decide how we divvy up uh, those top line numbers into those smaller 12 appropriations bills. Um, but then, and, and that work is ongoing. I haven't heard a peep about those allocations yet and haven't seen any draft language on appropriations bills either. So uh, yeah, that's that's still, you know, conversations that are not yet ripe for, for public disclosure. But then uh, what, what has taken center stage this week is an effort in the Senate, a bipartisan effort in the Senate to get an agreement on uh, border security, meaning southern border, our border with with Mexico, um, such that it would unlock political support in the House and the Senate for an emergency supplemental appropriations package for things like Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, etc. There was some chatter that the the Senate actually had the the framework of a deal, and we're scrambling to put language together such that they could actually put a bill on the floor uh, this week, but that's looking less and, and less likely. Um, there are, I guess there are pieces of legislation, language, excuse me, that have been given to the Appropriations Committee so that they can figure out how much money they need to put into these buckets in the uh, in the border security package. Uh, but there are still some big gaping holes on policy matters. You know, if I was a, a betting person, you know, what do I expect to see a bill in the Senate this week? No. Do I think I'm going to see one in the Senate next week? Uh, <laughs> I'm 50-50. The interesting dynamic about this, though, is that, you know, the, the House has passed their version of border security, H.R. 2, which is a complete anathema to many Democrats. If the Senate can put up a a a solid bipartisan bill with, 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 you know, support, you know, the 60 plus votes to get it out of the Senate. The question becomes, you know, what is the speaker the new speaker of the house Johnson? What does he do then? Does he put the Senate bill on the floor or does he stick to his guns and, and demand, you know, the Republican only version that the, the house supported? What makes that interesting is, you know, it starts, it, it makes people start to question, how serious are Republican lawmakers in the House about fixing problems at the border? 
Is it just their way or no way? You know, do they want just a campaign issue, a cudgel to beat, uh, you know, President Biden over the head with? Or do they actually really want to try and solve problems? So that, that you know, depending upon how much Republican support for this measure, if, if it materializes out of the Senate, you know, if it comes steaming across to the House with a significant amount of, of, of Republican support, it really puts Speaker Johnson and his ultra conservative Republicans in a in the hot spot in terms of okay what do you do now guys here is your border security bill what are you gonna do with it well it has to be said that he's had some threats uh from the house freedom caucus that if he puts that bipartisan immigration you know border security and uh ukraine israel aid bill on the floor uh they will try to remove him steve uh what are what are your thoughts on this or questions yeah, I mean, I, I just find it interesting that, you know, historically Republicans have been very strong supporters of of national defense, national security, and you know they they are letting those interests be essentially overshadowed by the what I think they view as a, as a campaign issue for immigration. Um, I mean, it is clearly immigration is an issue that goes back many decades. I actually worked on immigration issues back in in, in the Senate Finance Committee back in 2006. Um, wow. But, you know, I mean, there's been this just increasing, I think, public focus on the southern border. And Republicans see that as a, you know, a clear campaign issue this year for President Biden. And, and clearly, the president is feeling pressure. I mean, he is at least rhetorically moved far and he's getting criticism from his own party as a result but he's you know he's moved very far toward the republican position on you know making changes to the asylum policies and making changes to the you know border security but you know as tory suggests you know do the republicans you know are they going to insist on getting everything they want and therefore getting nothing just to keep the issue alive or can the two sides come together and, and come up with something they all can agree on and at least make some progress? And, you know, I guess that remains to be seen. You know, I want to 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 go back. I think what what, what we've done is taken the, the two drop dead dates that we have, Jan January 19th and February 2nd, and and move them to I think it's March 1st and March 8th now. So we we two we still have these two deadlines under a so-called laddered CR. I don't know that they're going to be able to get this thing done even by then. Because as you said, they're they're they haven't started on the they've agreed to a top line number. They haven't they haven't agreed on how to divvy that up. That was a part of the problem before, you know, going back to the end of the, the last fiscal year, is that um, you know, the Senate was marking up bills at a much higher level than was the House. And, you know, there's still going to be some resolution that's going to have to happen between that. There's a really interesting dynamic playing out in this month of, of now and, and through the month of February. You know, because of the vacancies, members that have retired to, to take other jobs, resigned their seats in, in the middle of, of a session. And lawmakers that are out long term because of sickness uh, the House has a functional majority of a single seat right now, which means that Speaker Johnson can't afford to lose. You know, he has a one seat margin. He can't afford to lose a single vote because a tie is a no in the Senate. And where that comes into play 
is putting a rule on the floor. Um, if the House wants to vote on a piece of legislation that divides the House conference, getting a rule uh, you know, across the line to start debate on that measure is going to be impossible. That means that, you know, as all of these things are being considered, the border security bill, um, appropriations, you know, which expire in early March, Johnson is having to consider a course of action and how to, how to address these in the House with a one seat majority. He is under, he, he's going to be under enormous pressure to put every piece of legislation on the suspension calendar. You know, was, Rohit was talking about that earlier on the tax bill, you know, it, it, put stuff on the suspension calendar. It doesn't require uh, the House to pass a rule first. It just requires the House to, to pass things with the two thirds majority, which also means Democrats have an awful lot of leverage in the House right now. So this is just, <laughs> I, I, and one part of me is really very sympathetic. I feel really bad for Speaker Johnson. This is going to be a month from hell for him. Well, you know, the thing, the hell of it is that, you know, looking at it from the outside, it would be, what's the big deal? What we're seeing is that there are bipartisan majorities to do a lot of this stuff, sometimes overwhelming bipartisan. And, mm -hmm. and because the House is in command and their, and their leadership is under threat, <laughs> you know, as you said, is you've only got a one vote majority and, you know, they could easily take down the speaker. He's having to do things through the suspension calendar. And it's a, it's a question of how long that's going to be able to last. But, you know, to me, it shows that there's there's some bipartisan, there's some hidden bipartisan majorities for doing things that uh, that people would like to get done. But we're going to have to take a break as, as we consider that and come back for our final segment. You're listening to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking about what else? Congressional dysfunction. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about the congressional agenda and uh, how it may play out over the next couple of months. And there have been some interesting developments, aside from the uh, the tax bill and the appropriations bills that we've been talking about. So a little bit of a, uh, a, a free form uh, here in this segment. Uh, sort of like what stands out to you um, about the congressional agenda, things have been going on, or even in the broader economy. And with that, I'll start with Steve. Steve, what developments recently have stood out for you that have maybe been flying under the radar screen? Well, I don't, I don't know how much under the radar it is, but you know, I mean, the the big debate going on right now is whether the Fed has successfully contained inflation and carefully engineered a soft landing for the economy. You know, so I guess later this week, the uh, the Commerce Department is going to give us a first look at their estimate of the fourth quarter GDP numbers. So as folks may recall, back in the third quarter, uh, GDP growth came in at a, at a real rate of 4.9, almost 5% real GDP growth. And I, I think most observers are expecting the fourth quarter to come in around around 2%, which is you know, certainly not the five percent we saw the quarter before, but it's it's positive, healthy growth. And of course, I think the the Fed actually is meeting. The Federal Reserve Board is meeting, uh, or the Open Market Committee rather is meeting next week uh, to decide what's next on interest rates. And 
you know, the markets have for some time now been expecting them to start cutting interest rates. Uh, but the Fed keeps pushing back saying, no, no, wait a minute, guys, you know, we we haven't yet contained inflation. And, and I think that's an important thing to sort of reiterate. I mean, you know, June of 2022, inflation, CPI inflation was running at around 9%. June of 2023, this past summer, they had got inflation down to 3%. So you made tremendous progress from June of 22 to June of 23. We went from nine down to three. But since this summer, uh, inflation seems to be stuck. I mean, the last uh, number I think we got for December was also around three, three and a half percent. So, you know, we're sort of moving sideways on the inflation front, which is the reason the Fed keeps pushing back saying, you know, we're not ready to cut interest rates because we're not convinced uh, that inflation is under control. And, you know, and I think this is one of those situations where, you know, we're going to get a test as to, you know, who, who's right about inflation. I mean, remember way back when infl you know, the, the Fed kept saying, well, you know, inflation's transitory and it's going to go away soon. And it really hasn't. And everybody said, well, you know, it's it's all the, uh, the, the fault of the COVID pandemic. We had all these supply chain disruptions, you know, and, and that was what caused inflation. And, you know, that's I think pretty much gone away and inflation is still sort of stubborn. And, you know, the test here is, you know, as, as economist Milton Friedman said way back when, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And we're going to sort of see a test of that because if you look at, you know, what happened with the money supply, now obviously there's all kinds of measures of the money supply. There's what's called M1, M2, M3. There's even a thing that used to be called MZM, uh, which actually the Fed discontinued publishing back in, in 2021. But anyway, all of those measures of money supply showed that, you know, money went from about 15 trillion before the pandemic, which is, you know, currency, deposit, bank deposits, money market funds. And it went up from 15 trillion to 21 trillion. And it's still floating around at about 20 trillion. So there's all kinds of money the Fed has created that's floating around in the banking system. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, you go from 15 trillion to 20 trillion, you're going to get inflation. And we did. But a lot of people are discounting that saying, well, it wasn't the fault of the Fed and it wasn't all of this money the Fed printed. It was all COVID's fault. You know, it was supply chain disruptions and other things, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine scaring the oil markets. And, you know, as, as we see the economy move forward into this year, though, we're going to find out, you know, did the Fed's money creation, uh, Fed money printing machine really have an effect? And will that effect uh, persist going forward? And, you know, I think only only time will tell. But, you know, my, my sense is until some of that excess uh, bank deposits and reserves get soaked up, either by the Fed, you know, lowering its balance sheet or, or by other means, uh, I think inflation is going to persist uh, through throughout the year, and the Fed's going to be hard pressed to to cut interest rates. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, the markets have been perhaps out ahead of themselves in, in anticipating those uh, those interest rates, but uh, as you say, uh, we'll see. So maybe there'll be a soft landing, and then the wings will fall off the plane or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not sure quite what the analogy is, but anyway. Um, Tori, um, what is uh, what stands out for you? Sure. Uh, so what what surprised me, uh, sort of sleeper issue, was there's been a, there was a big jump in consumer sentiment uh, uh, since last November. If you've been 
you know, reading a lot of the the newspapers and media reports, uh, you know, the economy's doing fine, but consumers have been feeling, you know, uh, there was been, been this big consumer melees about the the the, the direction of the of the economy. So I was kind of surprised to see that there's been a 29% increase in the Michigan Survey of Consumer Sentiment, their index, since November of 2023, which is the biggest jump since 1991. Um, There was an eight-point jump in December and a a nine-point jump in in January. And, you know, as an economist, you you see one blip and I'm like, okay, that's interesting, but it's also a potential outlier. I'm not really going to pay much attention to it. You see two blips, it's like, okay, now you've got my attention. So I'll be really interesting to see what happens next month. Because if there's a third big blip in consumer sentiment, you know, that's a trend. That defines a trend. So the and what was uh, also interesting about the, the results is that the increase in consumer sentiment, according to the, the people who produced the survey, is that it was very broad based. So it spanned consumers of different ages, different incomes, different education, different geographies. So it wasn't just, you know, wealthy people on the coasts who were saying, yeah, I'm feeling much better about the future. It was it was across the the board. So it really sort of takes a, you know, the, the, the first shovel to to the attitude that, you know, despite, you know, good economic numbers, consumers are just not happy about the economy. So the question becomes then, you know, what what were the potential reasons for the these two these two blips? Um, well, uh, the obvious one is okay. Inflation is is moderating, so maybe that's finally starting to to take hold among consumer expectations and, and households. It's particularly, gas prices are much lower than they were uh, last year. Unemployment is still low, but hiring is still strong. So people see a lot more opportunities out there than than they did before. That might be a, a reason. Um, the Federal Reserve has put a big pause on interest rate increases, so that's got to be fueling some relief among households in terms that, that carry mortgages and credit card debt and auto debt or are looking to purchase new autos and things along those lines. The stock market, uh, you know, has been galloping along. And then, of course, there's there's also been media coverage about, you know, why do households feel so poorly about the economy <laughs> when the economy is doing so well? So this might be sort of a self, you know, for a pro-cyclical uh, effect here that consumers are finally starting to digest what the media has been reporting about, hey, the economy is actually doing fairly well. So um, now this is all to say that, you know, the index is still below its pre-pandemic level by about 20%. So it's not like you know, the the roaring 80s again, or the roaring 90s. You know, we, we still got some some ground to recover post-COVID. But again, it looks like the beginnings of a turnaround in consumer sentiment about the economy. And obviously, it comes at a pretty useful time as we head into an election year in the fall. You know, everybody knows that people's opinions about the economy are very influential uh, when they go into the voting booth. So, that's what I'm going to be t- keeping an eye on over the next month or two. I will just uh, wrap up by saying that I was uh, pleased to see that the House Budget Committee passed a fiscal commission bill uh, with a bipartisan vote. There were uh, three Democrats on the, uh, along with all of the Republicans, I think, that voted in favor of the bill. And uh, so we'll see it advance to the House floor uh, I think the hope is to attach it to one of the appropriation bills uh, 
you know, towards the end, end of the uh, whenever we get to these shutdowns. Or put it on the suspension calendar. Well, yes, that's right. No, I put it on the suspension calendar. So, try. So, I think that there's some hope. I, I, I think that there really is some hope that uh, the commission might get passed. And uh, right now, there are no poison pills on it, from at least from uh, from my point of view, because it has, you know, it doesn't require them to, you know, that there'd be no cuts in some particular areas, or that there'd be no increases in taxes. It just says you know, come up with something that's going to improve the the fiscal picture and it requires a majority vote and they have to be at least two members from each party and it would get a vote on the floor of the House. It would still need 60 votes in the Senate. So, look, I think that uh, what's not to like with uh, with this bill and I think that there is a chance that it could it could be enacted on one of the appropriations bills. But again, you know, it it's there are a lot of people that would like to kill this in the cradle. So it's uh, there's still a long way to go. Uh, there isn't a long way to go in this program. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have to <laughs> wrap things up now. <laughs> so, uh, Tori and Steve, thank you. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>